0: mean ordinarily i would you know i might start thinking about having a day off but like i just also think like what's the bloody point you know sit at home
1: (laughs) i know i know (laughs) i mean i do think
0: sit home and stare at the news without having to check my emails
1: i know i do think that not checking your email and not reading the news for a day is a good thing though it's very hard (laughs)
0: Hello and welcome to today's episode of Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's daily podcast on the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Amy McKinnon, a staff writer at Foreign Policy.
1: And I'm James Palmer, FP's senior editor.
0: Later on in today's episode, we're going to hear from Sam Bishop, a project coordinator at the Matamoros refugee encampment on the US-Mexico border, to hear about how they're bracing themselves for a coronavirus outbreak in the camp. But first this. The world is changing in ways that affect your life and your business. Do you have the intelligence you need? Now, FP is offering Insider. With a new FP Insider subscription, you will get all of FP's content, plus exclusive access to data-driven intelligence, power maps that distill complex issues, in-depth special reports, and conference calls on the biggest stories and trends. Get global insight you can bank on. Subscribe to FP Insider today at foreignpolicy.com slash FP Insider. So, James, I feel like we should address the elephant in the room.
1: I mean, by elephant, do you mean a creature with very big ears? Oh, well, <laughs> that's, was... seems unfair. The poor man is sick, Amy. Don't rub it in. <laughs> Um, but anyway, we should mention the actual fact, in case all the listeners do not know, that the Prince Charles, the heir to the British throne, has the coronavirus, which is concerning because he's 71 or 72, um, yeah. which is, of course, puts him in a, a very high-risk group. Even more concerning for his mother, who is 93, I believe, and his father, who is 97.
0: So, and we've actually started recording our morning editorial calls of Foreign Policy, just in case there's any interesting little snatches that could possibly be used for the podcast as we discuss coronavirus and our and our coverage of it. And, and here was our conversation this morning about the news that Prince Charles has announced that he has contracted coronavirus.
1: James, my mother is very concerned about Prince Charles. Do we know how he got it? <laughs> I think Prince Charles, like a lot of the elite, may be a super spreader given the amount of like handshakes the man does in one day. I mean, we're just sort of all waiting on the queen, really. Um, she's been in isolation for a while, so, you know, I'm not certain that the British national psyche can survive pandemic and the queen dying at the same time. Yeah. There, there were those videos of Charles, like, you know, he couldn't stop himself from shaking hands and he kept, people kept pulling their hands away from him. Maybe it's time to re-examine the relationship between the queen and, and, and Prince Charles. Since it's been so interesting up until now, uh, you know, are they uh, distancing each other, and and, and relieved about it? It's, yeah, I mean, I, I think you know the the British royal family will find social distancing easier to practice than others. But <laughs> there you go.
0: Yeah, Britain can't cope with uh, with losing a royal at this time. I mean, yeah, even one. That's it. You know? Game over. Game I mean, we over. could lose.
1: We could lose Andrew. <laughs> Nobody would mind. It's, uh, yeah, probably, I mean, Edward would be be sad, but, you know, we, we don't, but definitely not, definitely not the queen. Wait, who's probably Edward? The littlest one.
0: In case you can't tell, I am, I'm fiercely indifferent about the royal family.
1: See, I, you know, Philip is a friend of our, our family, so I'm fond of him in a sort of, like, distant great uncle way. He, uh, he's been to our house for tea. That Are you serious? Of thing. Yeah, did you not know this? No. No, my dad was Prince Philip's like a religious advisor for years. I mean, still works with him on a lot of projects. They used to oh. go on walking tours of Greece together.
0: Oh, how lovely! Yeah,
1: but yes, the you know this does raise a sort of serious question, which is, we've seen a number of major political figures get the coronavirus outside mm. of, thankfully outside of I think some of the Iranian leadership, we haven't seen anybody die from it yet. But there are major succession questions in these, you know, extremely old regimes, and you think about the average age of a lot of leaders now yeah you know you have your macrons and so on who are young and sprightly but i mean trump is 73 or so i mean you know there's a serious chance of the coronavirus taking out a world leader at some point and i think that's going to be a, a shock to the system in a a system that's already s- suffered a lot of shocks and even figures like the queen who are chiefly symbolic that's a powerful symbolism
0: yeah But whilst many politicians, world leaders, members of royal families are going to be at high risk of getting this just because of the sheer numbers of people that they meet, you know, the really vulnerable people are people living in packed, dense conditions such as refugee camps, slums, um, you know, densely packed in poor neighbourhoods. I mean, even New York City, that's one of the reasons why they think it's just spreading so quickly there is that people are just living on top of each other.
1: In 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 New York, you know, this is one of the reasons why I hope that very soon they'll start to adopt the model from Wuhan, of centralized quarantine, where you take everybody who tests positive and you put them in a hmm. in facilities where they're monitored, where they wait out that sort of two week, three week period, because even though that you know that's difficult, because of course it's it's stressful to be away from home and so on in many cases people just don't have the conditions to self-isolate at home without infecting other family members yeah. and you know if you're living sort of four to a one bedroom apartment or more that's a disaster I mean I don't have we the know the conditions
0: we'll, I live in a studio I mean yeah. if one of us I mean, gets if, I, you
1: know, if I get the Rona my wife gets the Rona too you know it's kind of almost inevitable just because one bedroom apartment what do you do I, know. Um, I mean you know I guess you try and get a hotel room it's they're fairly cheap at the moment
0: And then there's the issue of refugee camps, which is just a whole other universe of concern about how that could play out. Um, And earlier this week, I spoke to Sam Bishop, a project coordinator with Global Response Management, a humanitarian organisation which has been helping to provide food and medical care at an encampment of asylum seekers just across the US border with Mexico. Here's our conversation. So the people that you're working with within the camp what's their situation right now
2: right so they're stuck in mexico due to mpp the migrant protection protocols which is colloquially known as the remain in mexico program essentially what it says is that you need to wait for your asylum hearing in the united states in mexico Um, Mm -hmm. so it's all people who are seeking asylum uh, from mexico or uh, central america or northern reaches of South, uh, south america but due to the program in place, they have to stay in Mexico, which is a country that many of them are trying to escape from. Um, The the camp as a whole exists because of this policy. Uh, It's people who are trying to flee to the U.S., but who have not yet been granted asylum. Um, They're waiting for that. Uh, Neither responsible country is taking ownership of them, so they're kind of stuck in this middle area.
0: So they're kind of in limbo. Exactly. And have you had any cases of coronavirus in the camp yet?
2: In the camp, no. Um, as of today, there's one case in Matamoros and three others in Tamaulipas, which is the province. Mexico has not been doing a whole lot of testing. We've had people who have met our criteria for monitoring. We've even had a person or two who's met the government's criteria for testing. Um, and we, t- we took the appropriate precautions and isolated them and notified the government.
0: Uh, mm-hmm. But as
2: of yet, these people have not been tested.
0: Are you able to isolate people easily in a camp like that?
2: No, it's actually probably the biggest challenge so social distancing in the camp is pretty impossible. The camp really can't get any bigger than it is. Um, it's kind of like mm-hmm. filling a jar with marbles and then saying, like, okay, now we need to spread the marbles out, but keep them inside the jar and it's totally full of marbles. You just can't spread them out. Like, there's no way. So if one person gets sick, you know, we can take them out of the camp. We can put them up in a hotel or something. But if we get, like, an outbreak here, if we get to the point where there's, you know, dozens or hundreds of cases, um, there's really going to be no way to effectively quarantine these people from the, rest of the camp.
0: How worried are you about an outbreak in the camp?
2: Uh, It's definitely our primary focus as far as planning is concerned. We're very concerned about it because it is such close proximity. And because there's really no capability to keep people separated, there's no uh, ability to exercise isolation. We've made big strides when it comes to sanitation in the camp, but it's still a bunch of people Mm -hmm. living in tents in a field. The disease, if it reaches here, is likely to go through the camp very, very quickly. Um, and as you, you know, the, the curve there at that point is very steep, not very flat, um, and that becomes an issue. We have plans to build a field hospital here, but the local healthcare infrastructure, uh, like everywhere else, is likely to get overwhelmed very quickly. Uh, so we're trying to mitigate that as much as possible.
0: And what are you doing in the camp to prepare for a potential outbreak?
2: We have a, a physician who works with us, who is himself an asylum seeker from Cuba. Uh, And he goes Mm -hmm. around to uh, different groups within the camp and talks about preventative medicine and the virus and dispels rumors and stuff like that. Uh, Mm -hmm. So this sort of education aspect of prevention is a big part of it. There's also uh, flyers that we distribute. Uh, One of our former translators, who was actually granted asylum, uh, mans a phone hotline that people can call if they have questions or if they're worried and they want to report that they may be sick. Uh, Mm -hmm. So we can go to them instead of having them come to the clinic. we have been doing as much as we can to increase the sanitary conditions of the camp. We've discouraged public gatherings. If we can't have gatherings completely, at least make them a bit smaller. We've also given people, like, vitamins, so, like, D3 and zinc and that kind of stuff. And then when it comes to treatment, as I said, we haven't had any confirmed cases yet, uh, but our plan is to build a 20-bed field hospital on the southern end of the camp. Uh, the, the resources for that are kind of coming from all over.
0: And are you getting any help from, from the local government city authorities?
2: So we have reached out to the local health department and they've reached out to us. We've met with members of the city, uh, healthcare infrastructure, um, heads mm-hmm. of hospitals, the director of the health department, stuff like that. They've endorsed our plans as far as they feel the field hospital is concerned, although uh, we're still waiting for that to be in writing. And they've at least expressed that they have testing criteria that they want to test on, although that has not yet been executed. Certain members of the local healthcare infrastructure are more forthcoming with that kind of thing than others but we haven't been getting like people and resources in large numbers from them or anything like that.
0: And what about the people that you're working with here in the camp how afraid are they of the coronavirus?
2: So it can be a bit difficult to tell honestly people are already in a situation that's very disadvantaged so it's sort of like one more thing but on the, at the same time um, You know, General health literacy in the camp is not particularly high, so rumors in both directions can spread pretty wildly. I had someone ask me yesterday, they had heard that there were 40 confirmed cases in the camp, which at the time that was asked would have been 20% of the cases in the entire country of Mexico. Um, So you have things like that, which are obviously ridiculous if you're informed, but which can be very scary if you're not or if your health literacy isn't as good. Yeah. And then at the same time, you have other people who just don't take it seriously because, I mean, same reason as anywhere else. You know, they hear it's, oh, it's just like the flu or you just get the cold and, like, nobody ever dies from it or whatever. Um, we have had reports of people leaving the camp who believe that they, had, they don't have a very good chance with their asylum hearing anyway and they think they'll be safer mm-hmm. in their home country or at least their home provinces.
0: Wow. And how could the coronavirus outbreak affect their asylum applications?
2: So we've already seen the border closing, sort of. In practice, very few people are getting like turned around at the border as far as like just normal foot traffic. But when it comes to asylum hearings, uh, we're, we're hearing about them being postponed or delayed. And because many people don't have the means to seek representation or for a lawyer or the, the court doesn't uh, have a way to contact them, you know, you have people who uh, they have an asylum hearing for tomorrow or whatever, and then they show up and it's canceled. And there's no way to like get the information to this person that they're being rescheduled to some date.
0: Right.
2: And then you're you're seeing with that sort of the same phenomenon. You're seeing a lot of places where, you know, the, before the disease really gets there, you know, they put a two week quarantine on or whatever, and then that expires and then the disease gets there. So like that two week quarantine is sort of this indefinite idea. So I think we're going to see a lot of these appointment dates just sort of like rolling down the hill indefinitely until the the disease is. Kind of behind us, but one phenomenon that we've seen in the last couple of days uh, is that buses are arriving escorted by uh, Gardacan Nacional troops, mm-hmm. um, and people are being moved from the camp uh, down to the southern reaches of Mexico. You know the, the government doesn't really like the existence of the camp here. they've wanted to decompress it for a while, and I think mm-hmm. that they're kind of using that opportunity.
0: So people have traveled all that way, got to the border with the US, applied for asylum, and now, because of the outbreak. Are realizing that they may not make it?
2: Yeah, I think that uh, many of the people who are making the decision are people who didn't have high hopes for their hearing anyway. Um, The success rate, especially without representation, is like less than 1% for an asylum claim under NPP. And people know that. They may also know that moving to Chiapas is probably going to throw a pretty huge wrench into their attempt to get an asylum, even if it's delayed and they come back for their hearing. But... Whether it's for fears of the virus or just pessimism about their chances they're making the decision anyway.
0: Is this keeping you up at night, worrying about it coming?
2: I'm not worried for myself personally, you know? I'm like a perfectly healthy 20-something male. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, if it hits the camp, it's probably going to be very bad. Just the rate that it's going to go through the camp and the resources Mm -hmm. available are going to be, it's not a good combination.
0: Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to add that I haven't touched upon?
2: Just that uh, many of our volunteers are people who work in the healthcare system because they're all you know, doctors, nurses, etc., and their home hospitals need them. Uh, so our volunteer, Manning, has really struggled lately. So if you're somebody who works in the healthcare profession and you really want to work somewhere where you are probably going to make a pretty significant difference in the lives of some people that are affected by this disease, Our organization, Global Response Management, uh, the website's global-response.org, is maybe something that you should consider looking at, uh, and any other support, same website.
0: Thank you very much for your time, and, and best of luck with everything. Thank you. That was Sam Bishop speaking from the Matamoros refugee encampment on the Mexican border with the United States. Before we go, we should note that in addition to Prince Charles, dozens of other figureheads and politicians and officials from around the world have announced that they have contracted the coronavirus. We have an infographic on our website with the ever-growing list called Coronavirus in the Corridors of Power. Head over to foreignpolicy.com to check it out. And please do send us an email. We're stuck at home and we're oh so very bored, so we want to hear from you. Send us your questions, comments, or let us know how coronavirus is affecting you wherever you are in the world. Write to us at at foreignpolicy.com. And don't forget to check out our coronavirus coverage over at ForeignPolicy.com where we have some of the world's leading experts breaking down what's happening and what could come next. That's it for today's edition of Don't Touch Your Face. I'm Amy McKinnon.
1: And I'm James Palmer.
0: Our show is produced by Darcy Palder and Dan Haverty and is edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please remember to cough and sneeze into your elbow. And don't touch your face.